Today's episode is made possible with support from Bremer Bank. Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank. Put Bremer to work for you today at bremer.com. The system is so broken that there's just not enough funding or opportunity to really, truly help these folks get access to the right care. It kind of it kind of feels like you're juggling all the right balls, but you, you, you know, you just, you cannot hold them because someone's going to drop and those are people. And so I got frustrated, right? And I always kind of say like where passion meets frustration created motivation. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Ellie Mental Health is one of the fastest growing franchise chains you've probably never heard of, and that's because it's happening really fast. The St. Paul-based company opened its first franchise clinic in July of 2022. Now there are 200 around the country with hundreds more in development. Co-founder and CEO Aaron Pash is driven by a big vision to destigmatize mental health care by building a national mental health care brand while also creating a better, flexible work environment for therapists. She knows the challenges firsthand. Erin is a licensed marriage and family therapist who loved the one-on-one work but saw a bigger opportunity. She didn't grow up thinking she'd be an entrepreneur or even a therapist for that matter. I wanted to be a weather girl. (laughs) Okay. Like, I'm fascinated. Like, you know, there's something you could say about that, though. I was always kind of scared and intrigued by weather, hmm. you know, but I also love to, like, you know, display and talk and, you know, like entertain. Okay. Right. So it's like I'm serious about science and this, but it also kind of brings me excitement and adrenaline. And I was pretty committed to that uh, throughout most of high school. If people would ask me what I want to be when I grow up, I'd be like, well, I want to be a weather person. Meteorology, meteorologist. Yes, specifically do the science, not just be on TV. Yeah, both. All of it. Yep, I want to do all of it. So then, what happened in college? Um, So I ended up going to college, and I actually decided I wanted to be in pre medicine. Mm -hmm. I had always been pretty good at science classes. I was drawn to that. My mom is actually a scientist, Mm. so it was just kind of fit. And then I realized that I maybe was came from places where I was the smart kid in an average class, and I felt like the dumb kid in the smart class. Does that mm, make sense? Sure. I had like a whole identity crisis. I actually left uh, the U of M where I went to college. I left for a semester, and I was like, what am I going to do? Huh. I came back. I talked to my college advisor, and she said, why don't we pull together a major that can use all of your science classes that you've taken and also explore maybe a liberal arts degree? So I ended up totally pivoting my junior year of college, and I got a bachelor's of science in child psychology. Hmm. And I was able to take almost all my elective courses in, like, neuroscience and all of that. And so it was, like, kind of matching these things together. And the first child psychology class I took, I fell in love. And I said, okay, this is what this was about. Okay. So you graduated thinking you're going to be a child psychologist specifically? I think, you know, when I took that class, I realized that the the ability for the the um, scientific part of medicine and the psychology of human relationships, I've always been a social butterfly. I was always, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I look back and I'm like, wow, I was always the person people wanted to talk to, always the peacemaker, a good middle child. Hmm. Like, you know, like there's a lot of qualities that about my personality that lent me to being a good therapist. But the child psychology class actually made me realize that I wanted to work with families. And so I explored all the different ways I could have jobs. I, I definitely knew I wanted to make some money, right? And sure. So I found out about marriage and family therapy, and I graduated from the University of Minnesota in the fall, and I started grad school in the spring mm. in marriage and family therapy. Okay. And did you love it? Was it a good fit for you? It was perfect. What, what do you think makes you or made you a good uh, family counselor? Yeah, so... What people don't realize about the the School of Marriage and Family Therapy, there's like all these different schools. There's social work, there's psychology, there's counseling, there's all these things. Marriage and Family Therapy specifically, the origins come from systems. 
And so what I loved about it is marriage and family therapy theory is about complex systems and trying to solve problems kind of from within. And so as soon as I started taking some of those classes, I loved the way that that specific theory made people feel. I loved getting a chance to sit in the room. I'm kind of like, I, I grew up in a big family with lots of drama and just people talking over each other. I was like, I don't think I can just sit one-on-one with people huh. and feel like I could do that forever. I'm like, I want the drama. I want all the family members in the room. And it just kind of kept me entertained and excited. Mm-hmm. And like, like I just, I had found my, found my home in kind of this quasi-medical field where I can also just look at problems and try and help people solve them. Was there a common theme or a common like this is the way to to have family peace and unity? Yeah, I mean, it was. And I, I, I emphasize the systems because, you know, you fast forward to me being an entrepreneur. And without that training, I don't think I would have been so successful as an entrepreneur. Mm. And so I think, you know, there's a couple of qualities just about who I am as a human being. Like I said, I'm extroverted. I'm an empath, right? I really pick up on other people's feelings and probably always have. Mm-hmm. That probably brought on some struggles for me that um, – and, and I didn't know why until I put a name to it, that that's empathy-based kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it just it, – it really did just click that – if we we can't fix people, we don't exist independently and solo in a vacuum, if you will. We exist among our relationships. And that concept really clicked for me. Like, I, I don't feel sad in the day because of Aaron. I feel sad if I'm not having connections. So you spent a number of years working for other pe- working for clinics, yes. right? During that time, you're, you're loving the, the practice. You're loving therapy. Are you thinking... You wanted to go out on your own? Are you paying attention to the business of how it's run? What made you take the leap and open your own practice? Yeah. So um, my mom, the scientist, she worked for Hennepin County for 30 some years. Mm -hmm. My dad at that point, he was a private practice lawyer who had become a judge. So they are public servants, right? They work for the county, the government. I finished grad school or actually I was almost done with grad school and I got a job at the county. Dakota County, where Uh I grew up and lived and had never left. And that was like the best job you could get, right? You got a great salary. You got a pension. You got all these things. And so I showed up to work, and I was doing community mental health. I was helping people get access to services um, who really needed it, right? Our severe and persistent mentally ill folks, often low income. And I love that work. And then I did what most therapists do who have a full-time day job, and I uh, did some part-time private practice. Mm -hmm. So I maybe saw, you know, 10 clients a week after hours, and then I had my full-time day job, and I was like, okay, this is a pretty good balance. Mm -hmm. Well, as I was moving through, remember I talked about systems and problem solving, I realized that a lot of the work that I was doing could have been prevented if we were fixing the system. Mm. And so I saw all of these problems, like in private practice therapy, like, insurance companies can just choose not to pay you or you don't make good money. So why would a therapist want to go and do outpatient therapy if you have to do it for somebody else and do it in a way that you have to figure it out all on your own and there's a lot of risk associated with it. You have to find every single client or you could work at what is supposedly the best job in mental health or you have a stable, you know, salary and PTO and all of these other things. And, um, the system is so broken that there's just not enough funding or opportunity to really, truly help these folks get access to the right care. It kind of it kind of feels like you're juggling all the right balls, but you, you, you know, you just you cannot hold them mm-hmm. because someone's going to drop. And those are people. And so I got frustrated. Yeah. Right. And I always kind of say, like, where passion meets frustration created motivation. Hmm. And so I would just sit and I would dream like in my cubicle and I'd go to work, I'd go to my private practice and I'd be like, oh, something, we have to find a way to sandwich this together. And so my actually coworker at Dakota County, Kyle Keller, we went to high school together and college together. We were never really friends (laughs) until we started working at the county together. How funny. And it was great because we would sit and dream about how we wanted to fix mental health and do things. But I often describe that if, if you are standing on the side of the moon and I walked around the, the, the light side and he walked around the dark side and we, we would like be at opposing ends, right, of the darkness and the light. And then we'd come back to the same resolution. And we were so creative. We could come up with these ideas and, you know, I could be the visionary and he was the integrator and things just clicked. Like what? What were the things that you were seeing? What, what did you want to change? 
Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things I wanted to change and that are really still the key differentiators of our brand now. The first one is making sure that people get access to high quality care. They know how to access care. They can get it. We can make decisions that put clients first, like truly put clients first. Mm-hmm. An example of that, we had an employee, um, you know, several years ago before I, before I was making any money, while mm-hmm. I was still giving the practice money, we had an employee who was seeing a kid in a school and this kid got expelled. Okay. Every other nonprofit I had worked at, every other situation would have said that that therapist couldn't keep seeing that client because if they were expelled, they were out of the school we had the contract with. Mm. But this kid, if you think about the kid, he got in trouble. He had lots of behavior issues, lots of mental health issues, lots of family of origin issues. This kid now was going to be away from his friends, the only support system he had ever known. And now we're going to take his therapist away from him. Yeah. That's not going to work for me. No. So this employee came to us and said, hey, can I keep seeing this kid even if we don't get paid for it? And I said, absolutely. And so I paid for it. Hmm. Right. And so it was it, it, it's always been about finding and doing and or even if it's just having the flexibility and the freedom to really do what it is I want to do, which is make a difference and help people get access to the mm-hmm. support that they need. That's wonderful. But you can't I mean, ultimately, like you were saying earlier, you do have to make some money. You got to make the numbers work. You can't pay for every person or that's that's philanthropy and not a business. So when when you were thinking with your your colleague about what was broken, and we hear that all the time, that healthcare is broken and, and mental health in particular, where did you think you could do it different? Yeah. So what we would do is we created a unique business model, right? So I took what I knew about health insurance companies. I took what I knew about how big agencies were paying people. I took what people knew or what we knew about how private practices were paying people. And, and so this is, it's, it's actually a perfect segue. That was delightful because our <laughs> second thing that we did that was totally different is our hiring model and how we, how we employed clinicians. And so people could go and work for a private practice where they would have a lot of risk, you know, or they'd have creativity, they'd have culture, they'd have maybe a higher compensation, but they would risk having safety, security, and support. And so that's what you get from a big agency. So that was our first fill the gap. We called it the Ellie Gap, where we were going to create a hybrid employment model where we could give people safety, security, and support while providing them with the culture and the creativity and the compensation that they could get in private practice. And so we created a novel way of compensating people. And this novel way put an emphasis on making sure that people always had a paycheck every two weeks in private practice. You might not have a paycheck until the insurance company pays you, mm-hmm. giving them PTO, giving them administrative support for around billing and collections and about around their caseloads and consultation, while also allowing them to kind of run it like their own practice. You pick the times, you pick the population of clients you see, you do all of this. And it was this kind of this, this split where we'd give them an hourly wage plus a commission. And nobody else was doing that. Everyone else was either straight commission as, a, to, as an independent contractor, you get a, a split, or you're on a salary or an hourly wage. Do you know what percentage of counselors, therapists are, have their own practice versus working for someone else like the way you started at the county? Yeah, so that's kind of a complicated question because it's more people nowadays, and that's triggered by macro system issues, healthcare issues, insurance, third-party payer issues. Economy issues, COVID issues. Mm, A lot of issues. A lot of issues. So you name it. It used to be about 30% of people worked for themselves or or a group practice as an independent contractor. Mm -hmm. That number's climbing closer to 50, at least here. The problem is, is that there's such a demand. Well, it's not a problem. I mean, it is, it isn't, right? It depends on what perspective you're looking at. Yeah. The demand for therapy has gone up exponentially. But insurance companies have not matched that demand by paying more. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our people are leaving to start a private practice and not taking insurance because they can. Because people are so desperate for mental health care that they'll pay, you know, $150 to $250 an hour for it. Which allows so some of the barriers of doing your own private practice were getting insurance contracts and billing. All of that was bulky and not worth it. Well, now that they're fee-for-service and cash-based, they don't have to do any of that stuff. So now they're... They're making all that money. I, I love private practice, which is why I ended up franchising and supported local business and all of that. And at the same time, there's a lot of it that's doing a disservice to the community of people who cannot afford mm-hmm. to pay that kind of money for their mental health care. 
So let's back up for a second. You're still at the county. You've got a job, but you're seeing all of these issues and you're dreaming up a better way. Did you start planning it out? Did you yeah. make a business plan? How, how long did it take from idea to actually making the leap? Well, I had a kid and a two-year-old in that time frame. <laughs> <laughs> so it took longer than I wanted to. But I would say from the time that I conceptualized that maybe we could do this mm -hmm. and start our own private practice, which is really what I wanted to do, is just have a one practice in St. Paul where I could be happy, Kyle could be happy, maybe a couple of our friends mm. could come work with us. I would say that was probably 10 to 12 months. Okay. And did you have the name right off the bat? Was it going to be Ellie? No. No. We, that's a whole story. Well, we want to hear it. <laughs> so working in nonprofits and working for the government and private practice, it was important for me at the time. So that we're talking, let's go back, 2014. Uh -huh. Okay. I know that doesn't seem like a long time ago, but in mental health, everything was still like the dark ages, right? People were still filling out paper claims. We weren't submitting them through an electronic process. It was it was just kind of archaic. Medical systems didn't know who to refer people to and stigma all time high. Mm -hmm. People were like, mm, maybe I need mental health, but we're not talking about it still. Sure. So we wanted to have a company that felt like it had a name that was accessible. So many other mental health brands were throwing out names that were like very ambiguous, like Rise or Dreaming or courageous center, right? <laughs> okay. And we're like, that is not helping destigmatize. Uh -huh. So we wanted the name to actually be something mental health. Okay. But then we decided it wasn't ready for it. So we decided that it was going to be something family services. So people knew that this was for families. This was for people. This was a services industry where we were going to help you. Mm -hmm. We also had an elephant for the logo. Okay. Because elephants, there's just so much common symbolism. We talk a lot about the elephant being our feelings brain and the rider being our rational brain. And you, the rider can control the elephant except for when it can't. And so that's why it's so important for us to be acknowledging our feelings and kind of managing them. We talk about the elephant in the room. The elephants are very family-oriented creatures. Like there's so many. I could just go on and on across hmm. cultures. And so we had elephant and family services. And Kyle and I, I was like, Kyle, we need to file our thing with the Secretary of State of what we're actually calling ourselves. You need a name. Like we need a you name. You need a URL. Yes. It, well, yes, exactly. So we did our homework. We were really good at that. We went home for the weekend. I was, I was actually watching The Crown with uh -huh. Queen Elizabeth, and they were in Africa, and they were like, Tembo, Tembo, and, you know, talking, which is, which is Swahili for elephant. And so I started Googling all these different languages for uh, elephant and all that kind of stuff. And we had a list of about 100 different things, and mm -hmm. we came together. On that list, I also happen to have Ellie. And Kyle was like, why did, why, where did that name come from? I'm like, oh, you know, people talk about Ellie the elephant. And he's like, but why did you put it on there? And so I was pregnant. And I said, well, that's the name at the top of my girl name list. And I'm like, the, the name of my boy name list was Graham. And so I ended up having a boy named Graham, and we picked Ellie. Oh, so, that worked out well. Yeah. So Ellie is, we call this business, my girl baby that I never had. <laughs> and man, is she fiery and fierce and probably everything my girl baby would have wow. been. Wow. So you actually launched Ellie Mental Health in 2015, yep, right? Under Ellie Family Services. Okay. And, and this was in St. Paul? Yeah. We had one location in St. Paul, three offices. And that was the plan? That was the plan. When did it become something bigger? Well, there's a couple of phases, right? So the first time it came, became bigger was about six months after we, you know, nervously signed our lease and put our houses on the line and all this like scary stuff. And quite literally, our colleagues were knocking on our door saying, can I come work here? There was an adjacent space to our space that was available. I asked the landlord, of course, with permission, and I, he even let me take the sledgehammer to the wall and we added, we had our three humble offices and we added six more. So now in St. Paul, we had nine offices. Why did people want to come work with you? Other than obviously you're a lot of fun to be with. That I honestly, <laughs> our, our, one of our core values from the beginning and Kyle and I have always embodied this as people. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Mm -hmm. Humor is a core value. We're really creative. I think I've come to learn that there's an, a part of my personality that is so passionate about what I do that you can't help but want to be a part of it which is fun, I, but I also don't know any different because mm -hmm. it's just, I, I just love, I love mental health. I yeah. love what I do. And I think that's an attractive quality if you're thinking about laws of attraction and just well networked. I love my field. I work hard. I want to 
make changes. I was doing a lot of presenting and connecting and trying to fill gaps within gaps within gaps Mm -hmm. um, in how we could offer more services to the community. And so that's why. And we had a totally, completely novel model that met the needs of what therapists needed. Yeah. A guaranteed salary and the ability to have uncapped earning potential. Yeah. With no boss breathing down my neck, I can see the clients I want. Like, we really created this environment of the best of both worlds. And you were accepting insurance. Yep. Okay. Yep. Always. So, okay. So was it when more therapists wanted to join you that you were like, hey, maybe we need to open other offices? Yeah. And so... We opened a second satellite office in Southern Dakota County. Again, we had both worked there. We knew the people. Actually, I think Kyle might have still been working there and just doing Ellie part-time. I was the first one to leave because I had enough clients, you know, to pay my bills and Uh pay the bills of the business. And we opened a second location. We actually really did poorly at that location right away. We didn't know what we were doing. It didn't have the same kind of zest and essence. Hmm. And people didn't know about us, right? So we put it in a further out suburb. It didn't work really well until we hired a clinic director who was from Lakeville. And it was like magic. It's Hmm. like all of a sudden he knew all the people, could walk the walk, talk the talk, was in the community, and we're like, holy crap, okay. So was that the learning? You got to have someone who is really part of the community. Yeah, we're building a really good story here. The funny part is I know how it goes, and I'm (laughs) loving the way this is shaping up. So yes. Well, this is fun. I know. I can't wait for you to see here the end. Um, So yeah, so we found out that having passionate mental health leaders in their community wanting to bring a change Ellie model, like the model of Ellie to their community, was super important. So we started doing that over Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I would go present at conferences. People would be like, we want Ellie here. Oh, there we go. We open one in Woodbury with a passionate Woodbury community member therapist. And this is what year? This is, I mean, is this like within a year of the opening the first clinic? Uh, yeah, we had four clinics open by 2018. Okay. So within three years, we were kind of very slowly. And one of the things that was important to me, having worked in nonprofits, is that I, we weren't going to ever take any money because I didn't want anyone to tell us what to do. Like that, there's the stubborn, there's a stubborn girl in me as I'm Mm -hmm. just like, I don't want red tape. I don't want a board of directors saying you can or can't spend money on this. And so we're totally self-funded. So how did you do that, though? You had enough coming in from the first clinic to fund the second and third? Kind of. Kyla and I saw about 40 clients a week and we had agreed that we would give half of our income to the business. Okay. So if you think about that, we were making a hundred and... 12 bucks an hour, and we would only take home half of that to help support our families, and the rest of it all went into the business. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that's what we did, and it funded the next one and the next one. And Did you have advisors telling you how to, I mean, from the business side of this, to, to set it up successfully? Google. <laughs> okay. I didn't know anybody, honestly, like, there were a lot of other mental health companies in the area of people who I had respected some other private practice owners, but I didn't want to do it like them. Yeah, I was almost a little bit deliberate to be like, what they did is great and good for them, but I don't want that to cloud my thinking of mm-hmm. of, un- of limitless creativity. So I'm trying to imagine what that Google search is, how to set up a, a, a multi-pronged mental health business. What, what were you Googling? So that wasn't the goal, Yeah, right? You know, I always say there's two, like now that I'm an entrepreneur and a business person even more than a therapist, I've learned so much, right? Like formally, informally, all mentorship, all of that kind of stuff. And there's two paths to successful business. One is you're an entrepreneur and you try 20 things in one sticks, right? You Mm -hmm. could be passionate about anything, but you're passionate about entrepreneurship. Yep. The other is you're passionate about one thing. Yep. And you're so passionate about it that people can't help but want to join you. Mm -hmm. And that's me. And so my Google searches were, you know, how to, what's a PL? You know, I had a great accountant, personal accountant who happened to do business accounting. And so she helped me from a financial perspective. But I had a really good business sense. You know, my dad my dad ran a law firm for a long time. Mm-hmm. I got to see the good parts and the stressful parts. And, you know, that the old business owners always paid last. I was always aware of that on payroll. I There was never a moment where when I got our first big check from an insurance company that was over $20,000, like, I would hold it in my hands and I would I would understand the weight of what it was I was doing every time. Mm-hmm. You know, even now our payroll every two weeks is over like $2 million. And I'm still like, wow, that is just look at how many people we help, look at how many families we feed. And so it's just been it, it that's always been very present yeah. for me as we've grown. So really anything you can imagine I Googled. How do you start this program? I I've never been afraid. LinkedIn. I would just rand I'd shoot my shot with anybody mm-hmm. and be like, hey, you want to do this? Or what do you think about this? Or you know, and it just kind of grew and yeah. you'd keep Googling. 
My dad, obviously, being a judge, he couldn't really give me legal advice. But if I needed some help, he would look over like some early on leases for me and be, you know, look at this is what you should look at and stuff like that. Then it just evolves. Then you start hiring your own lawyers. Then you start hiring your own advisors. And And did you find right away that you were enjoying the business part of it? I loved it. So grad school, Mm -hmm. systems, complex problem solving. Mm -hmm. I loved it. All those things. And as, as my career kept evolving, knowing that I'm kind of this like dreamer, entrepreneur, I don't I've never been I've never been bored in therapy ever. I would go back and do it full time in a heartbeat. I love doing therapy, especially with different populations. But sitting in a room all day doing therapy was starting to weigh on me. And I felt like I would see individuals and that was a small system. I'd see families and I was a bigger system. Then I started building a business and I was like, there is so much creativity and problem solving that I can use the systems training for. Hmm. And I I would say it's. It's my favorite. When people ask me, what's your favorite thing to do? It's complex problem solving. I often say like, I'm, I'm like, do you remember House MD, Dr. House? Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm that of like any problem. I just want to like go to a whiteboard and just huh. find the solution. And I will stop at nothing to That's try amazing. and figure it out. So how many locations had you and Kyle opened when you decided let's franchise? Yeah. So we had opened, I think it was 10 or 12. Wow. All in Minnesota? All in Minnesota. And that was so, so yeah. So going back to the whole community-led thing, our decision to franchise was not an easy one at all. And I don't know if you saw Entrepreneur Magazine just did an article on me. And I often tell people that when I uh, talked about, when somebody first floated the word franchising, I'm like, I don't want to be the McDonald's of mental health. <laughs> and the the title of the article in Entrepreneur Magazine is she didn't want to be the McDonald's of mental health. <laughs> yeah. So here's me getting on LinkedIn and Googling McDonald's corporate people being like, I love your business. It feeds my children three times a week. I swear. Yes. I like totally respect that business. So yeah. Um, I think people understand what you mean by yes, that. Yes, totally. You don't really think of franchising and mental health in, in the same sentence. When we get back, how to franchise mental health services. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from Bremer Bank. When you're looking for business advice, everyone's got an opinion, an angle, a surefire five-step plan. But if you want to know whether any of it actually makes sense for your business, who do you turn to? Work with a banker who understands your business goals and how a strong banking relationship will help you achieve them. Work with Bremer Bank. Because understanding is everything. Put Bremer to work for you today at bremer.com. From a handful of local offices to more than 100 franchise locations open in a year. How did Aaron do it? Let's find out. So what I had decided is that that same social responsibility that pulled me to open Ellie in the first place was continuing to happen as I was going around the country training therapists on some specialty work that I had created. And they were like, we really need this. And I was like, I'm sure you have it. You just have to find the right business or company or, you know. And so then I would kind of check with my network. I had started making colleagues and friends across the country. I'm like, does something like this exist? And they're like, no, we need you. Hmm. And so it weighed on me heavy. I'm like, well, it feels it feels kind of crappy that I've invented this business model that is so great for therapists and communities, but I I'm, I can't just share it without making sure they do it right. That's mm-hmm. what it was about for me. It was less about profits or any of that. It was like, I need to protect what I've built, too. Yeah. And and can I ask, uh, uh, along the way, before you knew you were going to franchise, were you, did you have it all written down? Did you have a playbook for, for how to do Ellie, or you just knew it? No, I did not have a playbook. Uh-huh. I just trusted, I trust my gut. Mm-hmm. I think all of that has really been that. And it's been something I've struggled with today is how can I communicate what I know I know? Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's like the entrepreneur nightmare and beauty. Like it's the beautiful nightmare yeah. <laughs> of like, yeah. I know what I know, but it's so hard to communicate that to others. So you're seeing the need. Franchising is a is an efficient way to, to bring a, a concept without a huge amount of risk on yourself. At what point did you finally say, OK, this is we're going to do this? Yeah. So I had looked at all the options bringing on a private equity partner, growing corporately, talk to a lawyer who said, oh, it sounds like what you want to do is franchising. Because I was just like, kind of want to do what we did in Minnesota. Can I just find like-minded people mm-hmm. who will open them in other states, but I don't own them? And he's like, yeah, franchising. I'm like, no. <laughs> so I I always tell the story that Kyle and I did what good Minnesota kids did, and we went to the woods for six hours. And we're like, <laughs> what are we going to do? And let me be clear, just so people don't start 
mailing me nature things. I'm a nature admirer, uh-huh. not a nature immerser. So <laughs> I sat really in like a comfy, nice chair by this fire pit while he was like on a log. You know, he was like your guy's guy, like shucking wood with a knife. And, and, and had you agreed that you were not going to emerge from the woods until you had a plan? Correct. Okay. <laughs> so six hours later, we emerged from the woods and we said, here's what's made Ellie successful. And it's three things. I talk about these three things to every franchisee at every discovery day, every everything. One, you have to be passionate about mental health. And I'm not talking like, oh, I read a self-help book or like I love Brene Brown. Like, share your story. How, is it, how has mental health impacted you? Mm-hmm. You know, be willing to talk to others so that they, there's built-in validation that they know that you mean that you want to help others, right? That, that is how we live our life, right? Mm-hmm. So that's number one, passion about mental health. Number two is be grounded in a community. Love your community. Feel, be, have a home. Mm-hmm. Be from somewhere, kind of like we learned about the Lakeville scenario. Mm-hmm. And then number three is entrepreneurial spirit. If you don't have that, y- and you will fall and then stay down. And I think that was those are the lessons we learned, right, is that if you don't have that drive to problem solve or be successful or figure it out, you can't be successful. And so we came out of the woods and realized that if we could find partners that had those three qualities, that was probably the best way to do this. And we went back to the same franchise lawyer and said, okay, tell me how this works. Hmm. And how how did that process go for you? How long did it take to get ready to franchise? It took a while. So we actually were going to launch franchising in 2020. Oh. And then the pandemic. Like yeah. literally a, f- a couple weeks before, we had our kind of first draft FDD and we were going to work with a franchise development company. I called that company before I signed the contract with them and I said, sorry, I got to move my 200 therapists to telehealth in a week. So we're And there's too much uncertainty, so we're not going to do this. So mm-hmm. we paused and which was great for us because we were able to refine things in the franchise process as we continued to scale in Minnesota. We Our business grew during the pandemic. I'm not surprised. How did the switch to telehealth go for you? It was actually pretty sophisticated and easy. We went and bought, I, actually, I used credit for that. I rented iPads okay. and I got every single employee an iPad that had connectivity with our EHR. So and all like headphones, everything they needed to be able to do it safely from their home. Mm-hmm. And and how do you feel about telehealth? I love it. It's a great it's I love it, but it's a great second choice. Therapy is is grounded. The, all the research is on having a connection with another human being who can validate your feelings. Telehealth is like hugging over the screen. Mm. You know, it's 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 a connection. I know that during the pandemic when I was talking to my friends and we'd do these like happy hours on yeah. on Zoom, they were great, but that is nothing like being in person and getting to touch and talk and feel and energy and when your friend spits and lands <laughs> on your face and you're like, "Wow, I miss that," you know. Yeah. Um so so are you still does Ellie still offer mental health? I mean, telehealth today? We do. Yeah. So most of our services, we try and encourage people to come in the office. The efficacy of our of our model just works better when people come in. Mm-hmm. I always say that we took, it was a educated choice we made to expand via brick and mortar, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of other businesses that have expanded via telehealth only. And it's worked out for us because third party payers, insurance companies, our bread and butter have said, we want people to be seen in person. Mm-hmm. Do you, you you said that business grew, which isn't a surprise. Obviously, we saw so many um, mental health issues rise to the surface during that time. Um, Do you feel like we kind of hit a tipping point as far as we're talking so much more about mental health now? Yeah. So the third thing we talked about that we wanted to help clients get access to good care. Mm -hmm. We wanted to have a place for therapists to work where they could have all that hybrid stuff. The third differentiator of our brand is I'm obsessed with branding and marketing. And one of my favorite core values of ours besides humor is authenticity. So we wanted to build a destigmatizing brand that let people know we're all the same. I mean, I've created T-shirt lines that say my amygdala makes me anxious. That's the literal <laughs> part of your brain that makes you anxious. And it's a or, very, very nerdy humor. It is. Yeah, but I am that. I am like I am the queen of puns and uh-huh. all that kind of stuff. We have some that say everybody sucks sometimes. And I wear that shirt when I go on these roadshows across the country and our sales like go. They're like, where'd you get that? I'm like, I made it, actually. You can buy one. Or if I had one, I'd give it to you. And so our our whole shtick is how can we let you know that everybody struggles and it's okay and normal and to just destigmatize. And so what the pandemic did is really make that easier for us because the worst thing that happened in the pandemic is kids were stuck at home with their parents while yeah. our parents were stuck at home with their kids. Exactly. And the teenagers, we have to thank the teenagers of the pandemic because they really, you know, we, it's no surprise we were all teenagers once. Friends are rule the, rule the world. 
And they, they, they still do. Even with video games and technology and opportunity, friends are everything for identity for teenagers. And we took them away mm-hmm. when we all got sick or when we were fear, fearful of getting sick. And teenage brains said, I can't do this. I need connection. And parents were able to see it. You know, since the late 80s, early 80s even, the push for two parents to work outside the home has been so high that I'm, I'm an older millennial, but, you know, everything has been structured, 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 structured. You know, if mom's going to be working, I, or dad's going to be working, we're going to structure activities after school, before, you know, all that stuff. Right. And what happened is we kind of grew this structured kids' generation that they were left with unstructured time, and they, their brains didn't know how, how to adapt to it. Yeah, they've and they never just, had that. And they just sit and spin. Mm-hmm. And that is like the basis of anxiety is racing thoughts. And so parents would be like, wow, my kid's not okay and, and freaked out. Mm-hmm. I can't even tell you how many friends would call me and be like, I'm freaked out. How do I, my kid is, my, I'm like watching my child go crazy. Hmm. And they didn't know how to help them. And at the same time, their whole life was also turned upside down. Turns out they were needing that social connection too. And so yeah. what, it do, what it did is it made this whole generation of parents, whether they were Gen Xers or even baby boomers still, say like, I just watched why mental health is so important. Hmm. And so we started emerging from the pandemic and people realized, like, I, I can't do this. I can't. This is not strep throat. I can't take him to the doctor and fix it. I need somebody to help me. But why now that we're back, you know, somewhat normal and, and we're interacting and we're back to our activities, why does it seem like it's not getting better? Well, so... The problem was, is that it's always existed. We've just coped in maybe unhealthy ways, right? So we never used to like balk at somebody drinking a lot or, you know, people working a lot and kind of stuffing their feelings or not talking about it. Or when somebody was sad, we'd tell them like, buck up, you know, you'll be fine. Yeah. So we've suppressed a huge part of who we are as human beings for a long time. And it's just been a part of how our culture has evolved, especially Western culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that it's more abundant. Well, that's not true. There's two sides of that. It is more abundant, but that's because our world has become more complicated when you take technology growing faster than we can even conceptually understand, just how busy everybody is. And just, you know, there, there's definitely a lot there that, that is, goes against the grain of our nature and, yeah. and how we're able to connect and have, have empathy or experience our feelings. But People are realizing that it works. So why would you go back to the way it was when the new way feels better and works? Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for business leaders who suddenly have employees that are much more comfortable talking about mental health struggles than they were pre-pandemic? And you want to be respectful and you also need to get the work done. Yeah. So there's a lot of research out there that existed again before the pandemic Mm -hmm. around like workplace wellness. Did you know that like the average person is getting divorced, which is about still 50 percent of people who get married Mm -hmm. the year, the 12 months from the time they decide to get divorced until they are divorced. They are spending an average of six hours of their workday focused on their divorce. Mm. Right. It feels like it just makes sense that employers should be paying closer attention to people's health and welfare, like mental health and welfare. Mm-hmm. I'm proud to say that I've created some of the largest, uh, like the, the template and bulk it for some of the largest uh, mental health care and wellness programs in the country. Like just people asking, how can I be better at this? And it's all the way from training their staff to uh, talk to people in a way that's less managerial and like bottom line focused and just kind of being a place of empathy mm-hmm. all the way down to providing co-located therapy services at um, a big hor- corporate headquarter mm-hmm. so that people have access to it instead of having to drive, leave work. That's an extra 30 minutes. Now it's an hour therapy appointment. Maybe it's 20 minutes back. I still have to eat lunch. Well, if you can just go down to the the main part of your corporate office and knock on the door like you could the corporate gym, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I love that workplaces are starting to pay, to pay attention to it more. And the research is clear. Like data, I mean, of course you can shift data, but this data doesn't lie. If you put energy and effort into your employees' mental health and wellness, the productivity you'll get out of them is, eight, well, it's actually 8.3-fold. Wow, eight <laughs> point, that should go on a T-shirt too. Right. So, okay, all of this has happened. You've sort of tabled franchising, but you have this plan. Mm-hmm. When did you and Kyle get back to it? Yep. So we decided to do it then at the end of 2021. Things had stabilized. We kind of knew a little bit more about COVID. We brought people back to our clinics. 
and we still do kind of a hybrid model. So we do what's best for the therapist, honestly, as long as we're meeting the needs of the client. So we're back in office and we're like, okay, we're going to do this thing. August of 2021, we hosted our first discovery day, which is kind of where you bring interested people in and talk to them. We had four groups there. All four groups were a good fit for us and we signed them. Was a good fit somebody who actually was a therapist? Was that part of the deal? No. And that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things that we inherently knew is that there are not a lot of therapists who are great business owners, Uh and there's not a lot of business owners who should ever be managing therapists. And our goal was how can we find the people with business experience and money to support the passionate, community-driven therapist who knows how to lead therapeutic teams. Mm-hmm. And that was our goal. I mean, this is different than, you know, buying a Subway franchise. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so, just, just a little bit. So who were those people who were good fits for you? Yeah, so these are people who are looking for an investment, often through a, like, a franchise broker, right? People are like, oh, you know, like, I'm going to put in front of you a pool cleaning company, a bug shield company, and, oh, here's Ellie Mental Health. Right. Hmm. And at that point, we had rebranded. We're like, you know, we're going to go into the world with how we wanted to be. So we had switched from Ellie Family Services to Ellie Mental Health. Mm -hmm. It was clear. Mm -hmm. You knew that we were behavioral health. Yep. And a lot of the people like the like our first discovery day had two vets, veterans who were like, well, I want to invest in something that helps like that. I know like I've been touched by. So it kind of became an easy choice for these people when they were working with uh, an investment broker consultant person. Where it's like, here's these. We have really good unit economics. It's not a very, it's a kind of a low cost to enter versus, you know, opening a gym, mm. which might cost you, you know, six, seven hundred thousand dollars of sure. equipment. Ours is like the max for one location. I think we have is like three hundred grand. Don't quote me on that, mm-hmm. but read read the FDD. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and so we started just getting a lot of hype, and we just came out of the pandemic, or we're coming out. Mental health is everything. Then yeah, it was like it went from you know being a steady climb to a hockey stick. And so everyone's like, wow, that feels like a good investment. Mental health is big everywhere now. So how many franchises are there today? Um, Well, we have a little over 250 franchisees. We are opening our 200th clinic in the first week of January. And we have another 450 in development. Do you hear yourself saying those numbers? I get the chills because <laughs> nothing ever feels real until, you know, like I said, data's real, mm-hmm. right? Like I can feel people are always like, are you so proud? Are you this? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then you throw numbers out and it's like, it's not disputable. Yes, I'm freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was in the business plan? How that seems like so many so quickly. Yeah. I mean, I surrounded myself with great people. We did decide that when we were growing that fast, and, and you know, the part of that was part of the plan, mental health, knowing that everybody wanted a piece of the mental health pie, we had to grow fast if we were going to get market share, mm-hmm. right? So we knew that we had to scale it quickly. We, it's, it, we're not in a position to slow down and be like, sorry, you want to invest in us? We're, we're going to put you on pause. Mm-hmm. So we did decide to uh, explore private equity partners. Mm. And we ended up taking one on in March, or no, sorry. May of 2022, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And they are kind of a non-managing, non-operating partner, but they have experience. Oh, they only invest in franchise portfolio businesses. I see. And so I felt like, wow, we really understand mental health. We understand the clinical realm of this. We are novice at franchising. So if we could find a partner that not only has some money, right? Mm-hmm. Money is nice to help when you're scaling a business, but experience in franchising. Like our operating partner, Chris Tonko, who I absolutely love and adore, he was the COO of um, 7-Eleven, which is like one of the largest franchises in the world. Yeah. So the advice that we get from him, and when I just have a question, like to be able to go to them, it's been kind of invaluable. How big is the corporate team at headquarters in Mendota Heights versus the the whole network at this point? Yeah. So I don't know all the numbers exactly, but I'm pretty sure we have around 370, 380 therapists between part-time and full-time therapists. Mm -hmm. And then we have another couple hundred, so 250, I think, corporate staff. That includes our call center. That includes our all of our billers. That includes our corporate office staff. So it's it's the numbers in the six somethings. But I I didn't prepare myself. Oh, that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. Um, You are the CEO of this enterprise. That's, right. That's me. What does that mean? I mean, what what are how are you spending your time? Yeah. So we actually just recently made some shifts in that. I we found a great CFO um, about a year, a little over a year ago, who had a lot of operational healthcare operational experience. 
And so the goal was to kind of, you know, get our fi- – was, he was our first CFO. We didn't even have one before that, mm-hmm. right? Like that's – it's hard to say that it was only like a little over a year ago that we brought on Jeff. Yeah. And he had done this before, like like scaled uh, healthcare businesses, especially with the intense revenue cycle that comes with healthcare. And so the goal was to shift him into a more of a COO role so that I could be – in the business instead of working on the business. I want to I want to innovate. I want a strategic plan. I want to go meet with our franchisees in the community. I want to be the thought leader in mental health. I want to continue to help destigmatize our brand. And that became impossible to do with day-to-day logistics of how many more of these people are we going to hire? How many more, you know, what are going to be our SLAs for this and how are we KPIs for all these different, you know, and I was mm-hmm. just like I can do it. But is that is that what makes me special? Is that my unicorn skill? Mm-hmm. No. And so we actually just made that shift to have a lot of the reporting move over to Jeff so that I can do all of that. And so I am responsible. Like I have four roadshows that are plant that are are coming up in the spring where I get to go visit tons of franchisees, and there are roadshows. Like I fly to a city, rent a car, and drive my way home through the country, okay. and it's so fun. And I love getting to meet with all the people. Lots of clinical innovation. I mean, mental health is huge. I am a therapist leader, which I'm the only therapist leader of a large mental health company in the country and a female at that. So Mm -hmm. I get excited about what that does for the people who work for us. They love that. They feel inspired just by, you know, maintaining that this person knows what what we live through every day. Mm -hmm. Right. It just it helps the brand. And who speaking of who is the typical client of Ellie Mental Health? Me and you. Okay. Or somebody who has no home to live in or somebody who is, you know, living overseas because they have uh, so much money. It's, so it's we, all over the place. Literally, my favorite part about the business that I have built is in St. Paul, in Highland Park, St. Paul, where we had our first location, I would sit at the front desk sometimes and nobody knew who I was. Mm-hmm. And people would come in there and they'd start talking and I would know who the people were sitting in the waiting room, whether they were my supervisees, clients or whatever. And we would have people who are on Medicaid who are living in and out of Dorothy Day Center sitting next to people who lived on Crocus Hill. And they mm-hmm. would interact and they'd talk and they'd be like, this is the most amazing place. Yeah. And I and they wouldn't know. One of them came up to me and said, can you just tell the owner that this is just like like sitting here makes me feel good? And I said, I'll let her know. Wow. Oh, that's so sweet. I love it. What percentage of the people that Ellie Mental Health sees um, have insurance and are using insurance versus paying out of pocket? 90 percent. Have insurance. Yes. And our goal is to be the most accessible insurance based company that exists. I don't know. I mean, I, I am probably in the tax bracket where I could pay for my own mental health services. I don't want to. I want to I want to pay for my kids to go to college, not, you know, <laughs> I want to use my health insurance. Yeah. And so we really want to make sure that people know that that's a viable, accessible way to get high quality care and still use your benefits. Wow. What insights do you have? It just feels like you've figured so many things out and healthcare has so many issues and problems and there are all kinds of different clinics popping up and it feels like everything's just getting more expensive. What have what insights do you think could benefit others in the healthcare field? You know, I spent six years as the legislative chair of the Minnesota Association um, of Marriage and Family Therapy Board, and one of the things that I think you know, and it ties back to your last question about what do I do as a CEO? Mm-hmm. Like looking at the macro system and and acknowledging that one voice can make change, especially when there's a lot of us. Like. Invest in the time, and I'm not saying money, I'm saying like the time to learn about what's going on at the legislative level. Mm -hmm. Like understand how your company and your voice can make an impact. Call Call your people and your senators because what I learned about health insurance companies is they're just doing what every other business can do. And mental health kind of came out of left field for them. Like there's not any less knee surgeries or traumas or any of that. And they're kind of like, they also don't want to jack up the prices for subscribers, but they recognize there's this huge big thing that we have to pay for that, you know, it's business, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how are we going to figure this out? And so they're, they're kind of skimping on it a little bit, which is hurting clients, therapists, the whole field of the world, right? We all know people who have better mental health are just better people, right? Yeah. And the only way we're going to be able to affect significant change is going to be collaboratively and also through macro system law change. And so I, I want more healthcare providers to work together, not apart. I want us to collaborate. Like we have power and numbers to be able to make changes and also recognize like 
business thought leaders in healthcare understand the, ins- the, the business of health insurance. So we should be collaborating on how we can figure this out, you yeah. know, and, and poking holes in each other's operating model to look for creativity solutions where maybe things just flow, right, mm-hmm. the way they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think we need to be doing more across all of healthcare. We need to integrate, not continue to segregate. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you had all of the benefits leaders in front of you, what, what would you want to say to them? I would probably crack a really inappropriate joke <laughs> just to get them to like me um, or make them uncomfortable and then mm-hmm. we process those feelings, right? right. <laughs> Typical therapist. Right. Um, I would say we're not leaving this room until we figure this out mm. and I want to help. Let me help. You know, there's so many people who know so much. And I think one of the things I've learned being a young female in business is I do have a lot to say, and it's a powerful voice. And the people who give me a chance, they, they agree. And, and I, I know 100 other people like me yeah. who could really help make change. We don't have to, like, there's, there's a solution to every problem, whether it's the right one. But we can't figure it out unless we explore all the possible solutions. Right. I, I love my business. Yeah. I love what it stands for. I love that, you know, you know, like every entrepreneur, there's the ups and downs. I would say over the last eight, nine months, I've been kind of in a down, not feeling like I could do the things that I was really passionate about. The business was scaling really fast. I mean, having, having 200 franchisees in the first six months of business in a healthcare business where everything's built in rears, like that's a lot of stress and pressure and I yeah. want to see them succeed and I want to solve all the problems for people, but you know, you, you can't do that either. And I'm definitely like transitioned to the up of feeling like I get to be engaged as a mental health thought leader. I get to enjoy some of the company I've built versus being stressed out about every little detail in the day to day. How did you make that switch? It was hard. I still feel like I'm grieving a little bit. Like on the one hand, I get excited about look at all the things I get to do. And on the other hand, I get kind of like sending your kid off to college, right? Like I, I get nervous. I'm anxious. Sometimes I feel like I'm watching it happen in front of me and maybe I disagree with the decision, but I know I have to let I have to put trust in the system mm-hmm. and really reserve when I jump in to 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 have to stop them or make a change. It's because they need me to versus I need me to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an evolution. So I, I plan to stay the CEO for Ellie as long as it makes sense for Ellie. Mm-hmm. I believe that indefinitely I will remain a member of the board and the founder. And and as attached to this business for as long as as long as it makes sense for the company. What is Kyle doing now? Is he oh, still involved? Actually, no. Kyle left the business a little over a year ago. He was having some health stuff. Oh. And it's funny. I'm actually going to lunch with Kyle today. Oh, good. I know. So we we've remained close. He just you know the the bigness of Ellie mm-hmm. and some personal stuff just wasn't the right time. And him and I have always been like. We could have probably scaled faster, opened sooner, done this but faster, but it's like, oh, sorry, I'm home with a sick kid. Or, mm-hmm. And that's always been, the ba- family has always been first. And so we, he, we made the decision together that he was going to kind of sunset out and do his own thing. Hmm. Do you identify today more as a therapist, mental health expert, or entrepreneur, business leader? Entrepreneur, business leader. Is that strange yep. to you? As soon as you said it, I'm like, I know which one it is, but it's still weird for me. Is it? I think, though, what's hard about that is is therapists aren't therapists. They're just really empathetic people who get other people. So I don't have to ditch being a therapist to be a good entrepreneur. In fact, mm. I think it's what makes me a good one. You know, so I, I th- the only difference is, is that I used to never want to talk to my friends or family about their problems when I was doing it for, for money. 30 to 40 hours a week, and now I love it. I'm like, spill the tea. When are we going to dinner? <laughs> and I'm like, let's. You can get your therapy fixed that yes, way. Yes, it's true. I got my haircut yesterday, and the whole time I was talking to her about, like, you know, divorce and blended families, and, you know, and, and she's like, wow, this was like a therapy session. I'm like, yes. Yes, yes. So. And no bill in the mail. No yeah. bill. In the- I paid her. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we've accomplished anything, Aaron is no longer under the radar. What an incredible story and the number of clinics that she's going to have by the end of 2024. It's just hard to even wrap your head around. To do that, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. 
where Mike Porter is a clinical professor of marketing and really keyed in on Erin's passion for what she's doing around mental health. Well, and, and as you know, that the people that you talk with on this program are, you know, they, 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 none of them got here without a certain amount of passion. But I think that that what they're doing with Ellie is, you know, it's it's really clearly a part of the the central foundation of where this business came from and it, it i think in in mental health care it's so important for it to be able to force it forward right there's so many right. challenges and you know this business is is really cool because it sort of comes at the vacuum in healthcare the the, the missing pieces in healthcare from both sides because there's a a vacuum in what patients need. It's so hard. I, you know, most of us, I certainly have people who, who need these kinds of services in my world. And it is hard to find somebody at all, much less somebody who cares. And then you've got the other side of the vacuum that she has with people who are here as passionate as she is. They're choosing franchisees to emulate their perspective. And that's mm -hmm. hard in itself, but look how fast and how many of them were out there who just piled right. on because that vacuum is there for them to be able to deliver what they want to deliver, but they can't. And, mm -hmm. and I think that that's, that's a win on both sides of this. It's an interesting marketing conundrum that Aaron mentioned where it, we know that this service is so needed and yet it still remains something that a lot of people, you know, a lot of businesses rely on that word of mouth and not everybody wants to talk about mental health or say, oh, I went to this amazing clinic because they don't want to say what's going on. Yeah. And, and you've got that. And then you've got people, I know people who are bipolar that, that they, there's, they need it. They're, some of them they're talking about or they're not talking about it, they need it. But to find someone who is going to, that wants to work with them with this kind of attention, you know, and then, and then the other thing that's really cool about what they're doing here is they're not saying, well, this is what we want to do. And so we're going to do, we're going to go give the best service possible and, and screw the system. And they're, they're saying, you know what, we know that somebody's got to pay for this. and not the vast majority of people who need these services are getting it through their employer's health care program. Many of them are getting it through the state health care program. And to approach it in a way from the get-go that says, we know that we're, we've got to get paid, but this is the, the confines within which we're going to get paid. That's I, I think that's incredible because it would be really easy to say, well, we're just going to rack our prices up like she mentioned and, and, and then the rich get better and then everybody else is, is stuck. And that's not, right. you know, ob obviously that's not great. Right. And I think that, that, that unique model is what has helped this particular concept take off so quickly. We're seeing a, a lot of startups in this space as we are talking more about mental health. What do you think, Mike? I mean, what, what impact are we going to see that have in the, in the next five years? Well, I, I mean, if you can find the humans to, to populate her staff on these things, if they, I mean, and obviously if somebody's willing to, to buy a franchise, they think they know how to, to staff it. And that's awesome. That's huge. In fact, I, I have a son of mine who just got his master's in, in marriage and family counseling. And the gauntlet that these people have to go through to be to actually practice is crazy right and the, the amount of hours that they have to put in for free and you know it's it's not conducive to to you know actually taking care of of customers and i and i really like the the she's starting with community and then she's leveraging that community for the expansion, right? The, so there, there's they see the opportunity that has just sort of come out of nowhere because there are more people like her and her her compatriots than than they would have guessed. Obviously, because right. they've got so many. Now, I took some time and went out to her website because, like I said, I've got some people in my world that that like if what you say is true, I want my family, you know, connected to that, right? And the people that yeah. I know. 
And I went to their website and looked around. And the other thing that I, that strikes me about what they're doing in these individual locations is, is sort of twofold around the, what they're offering. They're offering a variety of things and they're not just doing marriage and family counseling. They're doing, you know, they've got parts of practices that are focused on making sure that you're, you're getting your meds and you're staying on your meds. And that that's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And, and then I looked at a number of the different franchisees and each of them has a little bit different mix and that's good. That's because they've got mm-hmm. their things that they want to do, but they're, that makes, it fills in the cracks as opposed to somebody who, you know, I know people who get to see their psychiatrist maybe once a quarter for 10 minutes and then decisions about their lives are being made. And that's problematic for everybody. Right. And that's right, not right. what they're going to be, del- what they deliver at Ellie. That's not. Well, I think you just articulated exactly why Aaron is in this business and growing so quickly. It's it's an incredible story. Thank you for, for adding some perspective to it. As always, Mike Porter, thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. And if you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. Thanks so much for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Music